Good morning. Today we continue our series, I Believe. We have a conversation from God's Word about the core beliefs of the Christian faith. In the first couple of weeks, we looked at God the Father, His saving work, what He is, who He is, and how He works in our life. And now we begin, the second part is, uh, is Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. The question around Jesus from the time that he stepped foot onto this earth is, who is he? And you might think that's a pretty simple question today, but it's not. It's very complicated because over many, many years, uh, there have been many different opinions about who Jesus was, the historical Jesus, who he is, um, uh, what sort of mission he was on. And today we have... Um, many different opinions about that. Uh, to illustrate that, I just wanted to play a video clip for you, and I understand that you've tasked me with the job to give you God's Word today, and I will, but I want to just play a short video clip to illustrate that point. Go ahead. Jesus, to me, is, he's a person. He I mean, I've been told he's the son of God, but if I don't necessarily believe there is a God, then he may not be the son of God. He's probably just a person who had some messages for people who gave people hope and faith, I suppose, made them believe in themselves and each other. I believe Jesus was a person, um, probably similar to the Islamic belief that Jesus was probably a prophet, um, someone who had a very strong connection to uh, God or a higher spiritual being, but a lot of the New Testament, I believe, is probably more so stories giving us guidance on how we should um, perform and fulfill our lives. I think he was a real person. Um, I'm not sure about the Messiah part, but I think at least he was a prophet and he had some very important things to say. And. Uh, regardless of whether he was real or not or just how real he was the lessons that he teaches are extremely important for us to be to be civilized i think that jesus came to earth in a man, man figuring and i do believe in him like but i think that he's love i think Jesus was human, and I think, I don't know, maybe for, for my explanation for myself is that he was just a super smart person. I mean, people said he was the healer and everything. I think he had just more answers to questions that other people didn't have. I also think he's, he was human, but I think he was like just like really nice and as she said, like really smart and stuff. But I don't think he has nothing like supernatural. I'd have to say Jesus was a good man. Uh, I'm not sure if he was God or not. I can't really compare Jesus to anyone because maybe it's a bit to Gandhi, but that's about it. I can't really compare Jesus to anyone else because he was doing his own thing, you know, his uh, teaching, so to speak. To me, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is, I guess, a character in a story, but... It represents something really good, I suppose. I don't doubt that Jesus was actually a person, like he, he lived, but whether he was a Messiah or a son of God or anything, I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Um, but yeah, he represented good things. He gave people faith, and I guess that's a good thing. 
Well, the jury's in. Jesus was probably a man, most people think. Most people think. And you hear that uh, a lot in that video, too. I think, or probably, in my opinion, um, it's interesting to hear the opinions, to hear what people say about Jesus. Uh, the interesting thing about today's message from Mark chapter 8 is that Jesus doesn't say, I think that you should think about this this way. He actually comes out and he says who he is very clearly. And I think that the people in this church today listening over the airwaves and the people that you just heard in that video would agree that in order for somebody to have an identity, in order for them to, 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 to be and, and to, to be something in the world, that they should have a voice themselves. Um, mind experiment real quick. Let's say that your great-grandfather is a decorated World War II veteran. Um, he has many, many medals of honor. Um, it would be very difficult for me today, July 17, 2016, to deny that your great-grandfather was a decorated Army veteran. I, I, could, I could try to say it and say, well, no, he wasn't, he wasn't a veteran at all. And, and you would say, no, actually, here's a picture of my grandma and my great-grandma, and uh, this is the, his medals, and this is, all, this is all, everything, and, and his kin would come to his defense. Now, you fast forward to 100 or 200 years from now, and I might be able to, because of the passage of time and about how, how many of his kin are gone, I might be able to say, well, yeah, he might have been in the army at that time, but I doubt that he really earned those awards, and people might not even blink an eyelash. Fast forward 2,000 years from now, and the date is July 17, 4,016, and I could probably make up a whole bunch of stuff about your great-grandfather. I could maybe even make him out to be, if I wanted to, uh, an army criminal a war criminal. <laughs> and you, people might not even bl blink an eyelash in 2,000 years about the identity of your great-grandfather. Why? Because there's been a huge passage of time. And I can make up and say just about anything I want to about your great-grandfather then. What would you do 2,000 years from now if your great-grandfather's integrity, his life, his mission, his purpose was under attack? You would say, let's go back. You'd go into the history books. You'd go back to Ancestry.com. You would look up original documents. You would bring back the medals and the pictures of the medals. If there is even Facebook then, if there's even the United States Army then, you're going to bring back all the records. You're going to archive, bring back his archive Facebook page and say, look, this is what he is. This is who he says that he was. Now, if you would do that for your grandfather 2,000 years from now, I believe that we should do the same for Jesus today. 2,000 years have passed since his existence on earth from the time that he walked this earth he said and he spoke and he he told us things about himself when he walked on this earth and if we're going to understand his identity instead of going to popular opinion we want to look at what he says about himself so that we can more truly understand his identity and here's the interesting thing jesus says if you miss out on my identity if you get it wrong not only have you missed out on the promises of eternal life, but you're missing out on your identity today as a believer, as a person, as a creature. You're missing out on your identity if you miss out on Jesus' identity. That's why it's important for us to talk about who Jesus is. That's why it's important for us to hear what the world says he is so that we know who he is and have clarity and that we can share that clarity with other people. Okay, um, here it is in verse 27 from Mark chapter 8, page 8 in the service folder. 
Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Stop right there. Jesus and his disciples are on a road trip. And Jesus, it's interesting, doesn't back away when public opinion about him is out there. But what does Jesus do? He actually asks, what are people saying? He's going to the street and saying, tell me what the popular opinion is. What is the perception of me? He's been doing ministry for a couple of years now. When he says this, he's getting towards the end of his ministry where he's about to die and rise again. And so he asks his disciples, what, why are people, what are, what's the buzz? What are they saying about me? In Matthew's version, in Matthew chapter 16, he writes the same uh, account here, Matthew does. And in that version, Jesus clarifies. He says, who do people say I am? Who do people say I, the Son of Man, am? And that phrase, the Son of Man, right there, tells you something about Jesus. That phrase, Son of Man, that's used in Matthew 16, refers back hundreds of years to the time of Daniel and Ezekiel, this time when they would talk about a Son of Man who was coming. And they said this Son of Man, that was the title, would come from God. He would bring power and justice and peace and tranquility. He would, he would be the solution, in other words. He's the big honcho that's on his way that's going to make everything right. That's what's in their mind when Jesus says, Who do people say I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus is claiming that he is that figure that Ezekiel and Daniel talked about. We learned something about his identity right there, and we'll get into that in just a second. Um, Jesus' disciples reply, here's the public opinion. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, uh, one of the prophets. And Jesus replied, strike one, strike two, strike three, they're out. No. He allows believers and followers to grapple with the public opinion out there. He wants his disciples, because he's about to teach them about his identity, to think through what people are saying, and here's the popular opinion back then. They said, well, John the Baptist, he, he, he was recently put to death, by the way, he was a powerful speaker from God. He was somebody that spoke with authority and sounded kind of like that son of man that was coming. And Elijah, who has been gone for a long time now, he was a man from God. He was a prophet. We all recognize that. He was, this Jesus, they, Jesus, I think that people think that you're the next Elijah, that you're a reincarnation of John the Baptist, that you are the prophet 6.0, the next version that's coming out. You even heard that in the video, didn't you? People said, I think he was just a prophet. If you're thinking that way, Jesus is a lot bigger, you'll find out in just a second, than, than um, Moses and Elijah and John the Baptist or a prophet. Um, that doesn't even tell the full story, verse 28. The disciples named a couple of figures that people were saying Jesus was. One thing that we need to note from this is that Jesus and his public perception was under attack even when he walked on this earth. You see that none of them got it right. None of the public perception got it right. Jesus lived through a distorted public perception himself. He lived through that public, uh, public perception that was distorted uh, because not only did people think that he was just a prophet, but people during his day particularly his opponents like the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the people that saw Jesus and they just had, a, um, uh, they were opposed to his ministry when they saw him eating with sinners and, and forgiving tax collectors and, and talking about God's full and free forgiveness. When they saw Jesus do miracles, do you know what they said about Jesus? They said, he's not a prophet. He's not from God. 
No, no, I know that he heals people and that he does miracles, but you know where he gets his power? The devil. They said he's a messenger from Satan. And in the verses that you'll see up on the screen in just a second, no less than four times did Jesus' opponents call him a messenger from Satan, from Beelzebub, or from the devil himself. The Pharisees, the tax collectors, this was the popular opinion among, I'm going to say, um, <laughs> the, the, the scholastics of their time, the people behind ivory walls. They, they looked down on Jesus and they said that, that he can't be the son of God. He can't be the son of man that was promised of old. In fact, um, just to let you know how this unfolded in the next couple hundred years, a man named Celsus was a historian, not a Bible writer, but he himself wrote volumes and volumes and volumes about Jesus. Not because he liked Jesus, but because he was trying to disprove Jesus. And he said the same thing that those verses in front of you say. He said Jesus lived. He admitted that Jesus was a real person. He admitted that Jesus did miracles. But he said... And it seems like he gets all of his sources from a Talmud, which is a book that these like, writers like the Pharisees would write, that Jesus went to Egypt early on in his career, got magical powers from Egypt, came back to Israel, and did miracles. That's what, that's what he said happened. You see how Jesus lived through public distortion and that he still is today? Point is this. The next time that you pick up a magazine around Christmas time or around Easter time, that's trying to recreate Jesus into something or someone that he's not. Or that tries to pit a historical Jesus versus the Jesus in the Gospels. Don't be surprised. Don't stomp your feet. Don't take the magazine rack and throw it over. What you can do is understand that Jesus is God. And he says who he says he is because, as we're about to find out, um, he's our Messiah. And he did everything that he said that he did. And he lived through the distortion himself. Um, and, and to the point about Jesus' historicity, like uh, you heard it in the video even, to, to Jesus, as, as far as he's real or how, how real he really is, there's basically, and this is where public perception is off, there's basically no question about whether Jesus was, he was a man. And we not only have the proof in many scriptures that write about him, that have been tested over time in the Bible, but we have non-biblical evidence of this. We have writers who had no agenda for the Christian faith. In fact, most of these writers in front of you that you see on the screen, Tacitus, Lucian of Samosota, these, these are early historians that were writing for emperors of their time. And they happened to mention in their writings that Jesus existed, that he was a man, and that he was put to death by Pontius Pilate. In fact, nearly all of them in this list admit that. Flavius Joseph, Josephus, the third one on the list, first century, he was a, a famous Jewish historian, very credible, fact-checking. He may have even interviewed Jesus' disciples by way of what we know how he did his work. Pliny the Younger was an opponent to Christianity in the first century. He was a leader and a, a ruler of a sort, and he would persecute Christians. And he persecuted Christians, and this is the funny thing that he writes about. He, he couldn't understand why these Christians were giving up families, everything, their, their life, their families, everything, for their faith. They believed that Jesus was a real person, he wrote. And he said, it's true, Jesus was a real person. He was put to death. But they think that he's the son of God. And Pliny the Younger wrote about that. Celsus, we've talked about him just a second ago. Gaius Tranquillus was a watchdog for journalism. In fact, it, we've, he's known to call other people out 
when they, their journalism was shoddy, and do you know what he said? He said Jesus was born, Jesus was real, and he was the founder of the Christian faith in the first century A.D. Thallus, the next person on the list, um, he was a historian that wrote about the strange darkness that came over the whole land of Israel during the Passover when Jesus was put to death. Again, non-biblical source. That's admitting the things that Jesus is and was. And uh, there couldn't have been, he said, there couldn't have been an eclipse at that time because it was the Passover and there was a full moon. So he was commenting on that as a secular historian. And Africanus, we have a couple of pieces about Jesus that he writes about, some fragments, but he's another uh, very credible historian that wrote a little bit after Jesus' time, saying that Jesus was real. Okay, the, the, the question is this. We know Jesus is real. We know that public perception about Jesus is distorted. It was distorted from the day that he stepped foot onto the earth. Here's the most important question in the text. Verse 29. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? In other words, Jesus is, more, is less concerned with public perception. And he's more concerned with what you, and yes, I'm pointing to you, think he is. And he's not going to a TED Talk and hearing a third, pers- a third party talk about Jesus and give their opinion. You know what he's going to? He's going to his followers, the ones that he called from a tax booth, the ones that he called away from their boats, the ones who didn't have a lot of clout. They didn't have... Um, <laughs> They didn't have a lot of say in the world, but they were the ones that followed Jesus. And they were the ones that saw Jesus raise men off of mats who were paralyzed. They saw Jesus call corpses out of tombs with their own eyes and their own arms. They took huge baskets of leftovers when Jesus fed thousands and thousands, and they couldn't deny what they had seen. And that, by the way, is why Pliny the Younger would say things like, I can't believe that they give up their life for this man because they knew in their hearts and they saw with their eyes who Jesus was and that he claimed to be the Son of Man and he did the things that the Son of Man did. The question is, who do you say Jesus is? You know him. You know him from his word. You know him from the history that is in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts about him. Who is it that you say he is? Is he just a higher power that you go to in your weakness? Is he Dr. Phil for the first century? Jesus, Peter knew, the disciples knew, was a lot more than that. That's why Peter answers the way that he does. Verse 29, he says, You are the Messiah. In other words, you are the Son of Man. You are the one that was promised from hundreds of years ago that's going to come and bring restoration and peace and tranquility, the big gift from God, walking on earth. And Jesus' answer is golden. He says this in Matthew's version of the same account. In Matthew 16, he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. In other words, you didn't process this and then come to the conclusion that I'm the Son of Man, but my Father in heaven. In other words, God created that faith in Peter's heart and those disciples' heart that Peter speaks up for. He created the faith in their heart, and by the Father in heaven and his work in Peter's life, when Peter saw the miracles, when he heard the teaching, the Father was at work creating faith in Peter's heart a faith that understood that this was the Son of Man and this wasn't just a teacher. This wasn't just um, uh, somebody that had a higher moral view of the world in the first century, that this was 
the chosen one. Understanding Jesus' identity is a gift from God. Why can I be certain that Jesus is who he says he is? Well, God has convinced me in my heart, God the Father. Number one, he's convinced me that this world is broken, that it's not good. He's convinced me in my heart that it's bad when people get pulled over and shot. That's death, and death is taking away people from friends and family, and that's not the way that this world needs to operate. It's wrong. This world is broken when civil servants who are doing their job and protecting people are ambushed and put to death in Dallas. There's terrorism, there's government coups, and as much as I want to think that we're on the uptick as a people and as a world, and as much as I want to believe that we're evolving, I'm looking around and I'm seeing, and God has convinced me in my heart that this world is not right. Number one, this world is broken. God has convinced me in my heart that it's broken. Number two, he's convinced me in my heart that I am the issue. Not them out there, not the world around me, but that I am a contributor and the main contributor to brokenness, sin, corruption. And you might be thinking, well, I, I've never, you know, killed a police officer. I've never done uh, just, I've, I've never been racist or, or burned crosses in front yards. But you know what? That racism, the seeds of that sniper live right here, the Bible says, in Pastor Dan's heart. I may never call in a bomb threat, but do you know that the seeds are there that are prideful enough to think that I should have it my way and not God's way? The seeds are there, and if they're given the right water and they're given the right sunlight and if they're given the right circumstances, we are capable of doing the worst things to one another. And God says that he sees through it, that he does a full body scan of your heart and your head. I love this verse from Jeremiah because it's so... Um, it, 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 it speaks about how the Lord searches the, the insides of us and, and our intents. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. And my friends, when he says that he's going to reward you according to what your deeds deserve, he's asking you to check because he's going right now through your head and through your heart to see if the seeds of any of sin is there. And they'll come out, maybe not in a shooting, but the bombs might come out in a relationship when you drop a, a cutting word to your loved one or the selfish pride comes out and stomps on another person. It's there. God has convinced me this world is broken, that I'm broken, and he's convinced me of this. This is the beautiful thing, that he's given me a Messiah. A chosen one, that means the Son of Man. A powerful figure in my life who brings restoration and brings peace and brings tranquility within me and makes, and makes right with God everything that I am not. Here he goes on to, say, to talk about this. You ask, well, what did Jesus do? Of course, he's the Messiah. How would he bring peace and tranquility and calmness? Verse 30 says, first, uh, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. That's a wise move here because a lot of people during Jesus' time, they had a misinterpretation of who the Messiah should be. Some people said, oh, this powerful figure, he's going to bring peace and tranquility and he's going to end the Roman government so that we can set up the throne of David again and that we can have the old life again. 
Jesus is holding back and he's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you tell people right now that I'm the Messiah and they have a wrong perception of the Messiah, they might go bonkers. <laughs> they might take this in a completely other direction. Jesus is about to clarify what this Messiah would come to do in the next couple of verses. In the next couple of verses, he says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You heard two times in there the word must. God is trying to speak to us when he says the Son of Man must do this. In other words, he's revealing God's heart in his plan and the identity of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah was on a must mission to redeem you. I cannot rescue Pastor Dan from Pastor Dan. And I'm not going to ask you or my wife or anybody else to rescue me from me. But I do know that the only person that can rescue me is God. Because he's the only one powerful enough to do it. And that's what he's saying he's doing here. God looked down on Peter and he said, Peter, your greatest problem is not the Roman government. Your greatest problem is not that you need to go to school with a really learned teacher for three years and build better communities. Your biggest problem, Peter, is not any of that. Your biggest problem, Peter, is you. Your biggest problem, Pastor Dan, is you. And if you can't solve you, then there's no peace between you and God. And there's no peace between you and your your fellow human beings. God says, I must, because there's no other option to save you from you. To come down, be born of the Virgin Mary, suffer under Pontius Pilate, just like the scriptures say, and so many non-biblical writers admit. Die, rise again. Why? Because God was on a must mission to make you his child so that you are forgiven completely at the cross. That's why when Jesus put out his hands and said, it is finished, and there was darkness over the whole land, he meant all the sin that's inside of you is done. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What that scripture says is this, that Jesus did an identity swap with you. Jesus took his perfect life as God, and he said, you have my life. You be forgiven. You are one that has lived the life that I've lived because I've given it to you as a gift. That's why I must go to the cross. I must, Jesus didn't die to, to just be a higher being in our life that we can go to to give us the warm and fuzzies. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to be a good teacher. He died on the cross to give you his identity and forgive you. And at the same time, it said that he took on all of your sin. And that when he took on all of your sin, it's forgiven and forgotten for good in front of God. Jesus was on a must mission to die for your sins. And here's where Peter is, grap- is, is, is living with this identity and he's, he's struggling with it in the next couple of verses. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay, so it, this is embarrassing, but imagine this. Peter, the disciple, taking Jesus, the Son of God, and grabbing him, taking him aside, and then he begins to scold him. And the words in the Greek make it sound this way, that he was scolding him like a father scolds a son for using bad language, and he made Jesus wash his mouth out. Now, why would Peter make Jesus wash his mouth out? As embarrassing as that is, Peter was afraid. He was afraid when he heard suffering, arrested, death, 
And he knew that this identity, the Messiah, who would go through pain, was the leader for all of his disciples as well. Who was going to be the next in the frying pan? Peter, the disciples. The easy part about Jesus' identity is that God puts it in our heart and we believe it. The hard part about Jesus' identity for you and for me is to live underneath his identity. We can become offended and we can get squirmy when we fumble Jesus at work because we're embarrassed about his identity. We can get squirmy, we can get embarrassed about Jesus, and we can pull him aside and start to scold him when we put Jesus in our backpack at school and leave him there. This is how Satan goes to work with Peter. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but human concerns. This is what's happening. And this is what can happen easily in our life underneath Jesus' identity. Notice that, first of all, the fear of pain that comes with the identity of Christ in our life, whatever kind of embarrassment or discomfort that he brings us, causes us to rebuke Jesus. In other words, to say to Jesus, and this is really what Peter is saying, Jesus, you know, you say you're going to go to the cross. I don't want you to go to the cross. That's not the Jesus I want. I want a Jesus that can, can, can bring me happiness and the warm and fuzzies and a Jesus that makes the life easy. If Jesus would have listened to Peter's uh, advice about his identity of Jesus, Jesus wouldn't be on the cross. Jesus wouldn't have died for the sins of the world. Why? Because Jesus had God's concerns higher than man's concerns. He had God's concerns to die for the sins of the world over his own comfort. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane he said, not my will, but your will, Father, be done. But what happens in our life is this. The pain that you saw in verse 32 that we rebuke Jesus with turns into an entryway for Satan. Satan enters in and he convinces us and he elevates human concerns over God's concerns. So I am more concerned about being comfortable, fitting in, um, whether, I, whether I find it uncomfortable believing in Jesus intellectually or whether I just don't feel like being embarrassed by, by having the, the name Jesus attached to me, all of a sudden all my decisions are being driven by my concerns. But Jesus says, you know what happens when you put your concerns over God's concerns? You throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. It sounds like right there and from these verses that when you throw Jesus out, you throw out your Messiah. If you've done that in your life, in a little way or a big way, here's the comfort. Jesus still is your Savior. He still has his identity, and he's still giving it to you because his concerns is that all people come to a knowledge of the truth about his identity, and that means you, are forgiven, and that promise is for the whole world. Every individual that comes and hears and believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And who only can do that? God, the Father in heaven. Verse 34, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
Forever who want, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What Jesus is saying here in summary is this. For those who find the Messiah or this Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God too inconvenient or too uncomfortable, um, they've lost everything. They've lost it. Not only have they lost eternal life, but they've lost the peace that we have today as somebody that is forgiven in God's eyes that can live with ourselves because God loves us through Jesus. We've lost that if you lose Jesus. But, and then he says, the sec, uh, verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. In other words, Jesus' followers are saved by getting lost in his identity. If you get Jesus' identity wrong, you don't have a Messiah. You have a Messiah when you get lost in his identity and you ask the question, well, what does that mean and how do you do that? <laughs> you do it, actually, well, actually, you do it right now. If you've heard these words over the airwaves or you're sitting in this church today and you've rediscovered who Jesus is and you know in your heart that the words that I spoke were true, then you've lost your identity in Jesus. You're saved. You have him. You get it. Romans chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 2 say it a different way, but it's the same faith that's being created there. It says this. It says that when Jesus died on the cross, you died on the cross. That is your old self. It's gone. It's forgotten. It says that when Jesus rose from the dead, you were born again, that you're alive today too. And you know where that all happens? It actually happens, it says in both of those verses, at your baptism where God comes to you and he washes you of all of your sin and he gives you Jesus himself as your own identity. It's like you're putting Jesus on. And so this week, get wet. I don't mean get baptized again if you've been baptized. There's only one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But this week, get wet with your baptism and remember who God has made you to be because he sent his son Jesus and he sent him to die for you and he sent him to be your identity. Um, that means when I'm a father or a husband, who am I going to be in my house? Jesus. If I'm a mother, if I'm a wife, I'm going to be Jesus to my husband and to my children. If I'm a child, I'm going to be Jesus to my mom, to my dad. If I'm a single person, I'm going to be Jesus to my friends, to uh, those around me, to my community. I'm going to be Jesus because it's right there in your baptism that Jesus says, I'm giving you my identity. Two last questions. The first question you're going to ask yourself this week and many times in the future, maybe many times in the past, you've asked the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Ask that question about yourself real quick. Who do people say that I am? The answers, alcoholic, Broken, cheater, disloyal. And then ask this this week. Go to God in prayer and ask him the second question that Jesus asks his disciples. But God, who do you say that I am? And do you know who God says that you are? Because of your baptism and because Jesus gave his life for you? He comes back to you and he says none of the above. You are my forgiven child washed in the blood of the lamb you are the most beautiful thing to me and the apple of my eye you are clean you are forgiven 
You are everything that my son Jesus was and is. And I want you to stay that way because you know his identity and you know yourself and you know my love. Amen.